So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. All right, thanks, Leah. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for visiting today. If it's your first Sunday, uh, Spence said we're glad, glad you're here. Uh, we are in a sermon series right now on the Gospel of John, which you probably uh, guessed uh, with, with the reading. Uh, we're in uh, week three of six, roughly, in this kind of mini-series within the broader series of preaching the whole book. Uh, but approaching the end, this kind of mini-series of taking a deep dive into uh, the crucifixion. So uh, kind of beginning a couple of weeks ago with his arrest, his unjust arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sentencing, his last couple of weeks, then today we're uh, beginning to look at the crucifixion proper, how the Bible portrays it uh, narratively uh, in detail form, also kind of broad scope and just seeing uh, what theology do we derive from this. Uh, and so today um, we are going to look at this big question of where did Jesus die? And so uh, this is a question that um, other parts of John 19 address as well, as, as well as the other gospel accounts, of course. But uh, this particular part of John 19 uh, really kind of drills into this. And so we're going to um, approach the cross from the vantage point of this question today. Uh, the next two weeks, we'll do something a little bit different um, as sort of the, the narrative kind of allows for. So, um, but uh, location matters theologically. I know for some of you, maybe a lot of you, that might be a new, new idea or concept, but uh, location uh, throughout the Bible, uh, there's significance to, to, to places, to, to uh, names of places, to where God works and sometimes where he doesn't work and showing a contrast and things like that. Um, and this is also happening here uh, in, uh, in the Gospel accounts in John, in John 19. So the, the what of the crucifixion is kind of being painted um, uh, in one sense in a very prepositional, straightforward way, like it just says in verse 18, and they crucified him. Uh, it's very kind of straightforward. And yet the why is kind of painted in as well with the other details uh, surrounding uh, place names and um, kind of Jesus' proximity uh, to different things uh, as well. And so, um, again, we say this a lot here, but the what's of theology are not as important as the why's and the how's. Uh, and so when we study the Bible and read it and talk about theology and really listen to Jesus and what he's saying, we've got to make sure we're getting to those why's and how's as well and not just the what, the facts, although those are very important as well. The historical basis uh, for the fact that, that Jesus died on a cross uh, is, is crucial. But the Bible always goes further. There's always that what and why and, and, and how and why is this such a big deal and how is this important for us. So, uh, and again, location helps us answer those la uh, latter questions. So uh, I'll just say uh, kind of um, out front here the, the four things where I'm going, uh, if that helps. Um, but there are four, I think, angles to this question uh, in terms of where did Jesus die. The first is at Golgotha. The second is between two other criminals. The third is outside of the city. And the fourth is underneath a multilingual sign. All right, so at Golgotha, between two others, 
outside the city, decidedly not in the city. We'll talk about that. Outside the city, as you see painted here. Um, and underneath a translated multilingual sign with his name on it, uh, both in Aramaic and Greek and Latin. All right, so all that means something to us, Theolot. It is history. So this, in one sense, it's just descriptive of what happened, but, um, but these things matter to us on a deeper level than that. And so we'll kind of use those, those four angles to tw- as facets of the one diamond to twist that a bit and look at the gospel from these angles. All right, that's kind of today's plan. So let's start with uh, the first, which is at Golgotha. Jesus died at a place named in Aramaic Golgotha, which means the, the place of the skull. So the first question is, what is the significance of skull or the, this place that's called skull? Uh, I think there are a couple of possibilities to this. First, um, it could denote what was going to happen to him at his crucifixion. That is that he would become a skull, so to speak, and die. Uh, In one sense, it's really that simple. Uh, It's important that Jesus didn't die in a place called Sunrise Beach or Candyland, but this is skull. Uh, If if he died at the state fair, he would have died in the haunted house and not inside Sweet Martha's Cookies or wherever your favorite place is at the fair, like the giant sing-along. This is very important. Um, I was actually looking at pictures of skulls this week uh, not because I always like to do that, but because of uh, th- this. And just reminded of how horrific it is just to look at a skull. Like, I could barely do it. I was actually going to put one up on a slide, and I'm like, I can't do it even. Like, I didn't want to push you guys through that. Uh, it's horrific. It's, it's horrible. It's unnatural. Uh, in what, as Christians, we believe this, that death is an unnatural thing in a sense. It wasn't meant to be. And so going through it as a mourner or going through it as a sufferer uh, is not just problematic, it's backwards. It's upside down. It's uh, an abomination. It's, it's unhealthy. And so the fact that Jesus walked into this for us is to say that he walked into something that was our very worst nightmares. Uh, he walked into something to take on what it signified or what it was translated as, in this case, a place of a skull. So on the one hand, uh, this denotes what was going to happen to him. On the other hand, skull could denote what he was going to do. Uh, which was to crush the skull of the devil uh, himself. Genesis 3.15, the very beginning of the Bible, uh, says after the devil successfully tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the one tree they weren't supposed to, uh, it says, or God says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman Eve and between your offspring and hers. Speaking of Jesus, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is what we call in theology the Proto-Evangelion, which is a Greek term meaning first gospel uh, or the first explicit prophecy. There are implicit ones before this, but the first explicit prophecy um, of Jesus Christ in the Bible where God says he was going to come into the world immediately after sin enters it and says, I'm going to right all wrongs. I'm going to crush the one who tempted uh, my, my first two created beings into this hellhole that, that, that they now find themselves in. Um, the way I'm going to do it is though I'm going to be struck in the heel. And so that's actually kind of a, uh, a sign of the crucifixion. Um, what's, what Jesus is doing right here, and again, Golgotha is a small window into this, not the only way we access it, but a small window into this where we see that the devil will strike Jesus on the heel, i.e. crucify, or help with the, expedite the crucifixion. 
Um, but through that, uh, Jesus will wield a, a type of destruction on top of the devil's head that he will not survive. He, he will be crushed uh, and, and, uh, and destroyed. Later in the Old Testament, in Judges 9.53, um, we also read about a woman, unnamed woman, who cracked the skull of a wicked king and in that way helped to save God's people for a time. Uh, in fact, there are other instances of women in the spirit of Eve crushing the heads of wicked uh, men or kings in, in the Old Testament to serve as additional prophetic iterations of this initial promise in Genesis 3.15. Another pointer ahead to Jesus who would come to do this at the highest level. Um, and so here on the bottom, we see we have kind of this, uh, we have prophecy or promise uh, with Eve um, that the offspring or seed of Eve would come. Speaking of Jesus, it was a prophecy. It was a, a promise looking ahead. Then you have, like in the Old Testament, these stories that seem random and kind of weird and hard to interpret, kind of out of place, but they aren't. They, they serve as other, like, narrative prophetic iterations of another woman here. Uh, just like Eve is called woman in Genesis 3, another woman now is crushing the skull of this evil uh, antagonist um, in this story. Uh, that, that, again, is this reminder that God is at work. He, he's, he's not absent from his people. He's, he's uh, hearkening us back to Eve, but also pointing ahead to Jesus, who is actually uh, the seed of Eve, the, the offspring of, of the woman who would come to do this at the highest level. So, that's all good news. This even becomes better news for us, though, when we remember that a cracked or crushed skull is lethal. That's not something that you usually survive, right? Um, in other words, Jesus didn't die at a place called paper cut. He died at a place called skull, um, meaning that when it comes to the devil, when it comes to your sin, when it comes to the problem that befalls all of humankind for all of history, that is, separation from God and us running our hellbound race, that idea, what this is saying is Jesus came to deliver a skull-crushing blow to that, not just give it a bit of a paper cut on the cheek, which is, if you're a sinner in the room, you don't have to raise your hand, um, but it, that's good news. Christian or non-Christian, uh, when you struggle to not, not do what you think you're supposed to do, or when you keep doing what you know you're not supposed to do, this kind of predicament we still find ourselves in as Christians. We're plagued still, uh, in a sense, even though we're completely pure in Christ and saved and have all the hope in the world and the universe. We still find ourselves in that place sometimes. This is amazing news uh, for you and for us, that that, that has been given a skull-crushing uh, blow uh, and, and not just a um, survivable paper cut. Your sin did not survive the cross. It didn't survive. Isn't that great news? Your sin didn't survive. It died there with Jesus, uh, never to rise again, as did the devil, the tempter, uh, though he's still on a, a leash uh, in, in working in different ways in the world. Um, it, it, his time is numbered, and he's been delivered a lethal blow, and he's slowly bleeding out. This is what the Bible is saying is we put our hope in the one who did this for us. This is why we're face, facing Jesus, put before Jesus and to say, trust in him, uh, not yourselves. Trust in what he's done for you here uh, in delivering you. All right, the urgency then behind all of that is that we're all just a few years away from becoming a skull in the ground ourselves. Um, 
Whether you live another year or you live 80 years, does it really matter? Is it that different? Like, we're, we're all on our way to death. We're all, like, sprinting towards the grave on, on some level. And so the fact that Jesus died in, in a place that had grave-like imagery, you know, like, it's almost like we're looking at our, our, um, our grave plots before we die, and we're saying, Jesus has already been in there. Like, my grave plot, uh, your grave plot. He's already been in there and come out. Like, how cool is that to think about? And, and that's, the, that's Christianity. You know, so we put our hope in the one who's, as a forerunner, already died and was buried in our grave plot. And they burst forth from the tomb, you know, uh, to live forever. Like, trust in him. Trust in him. Trust in him. Uh, th- this is saying, uh, again, through the window of a simple word uh, called Golgotha. Okay, second uh, is between two, uh, between two others. The, the, in terms of where did Jesus die? It was precisely between two others. If there was three people, it was important that he wasn't the first, and it was important that he wasn't the third. It had to be the second. Uh, all four gospel accounts mention this. Uh, Jesus died among criminals right in the middle of two others. Um, on one level, uh, many believe, and I would be one of them, uh, that this has to do with symbolizing mediation, uh, showing us that Jesus, by way of his death, comes between two at-odds parties in order to bring them together. Um, Jesus here is showing himself to be the bridge builder of the ages, uh, the one who is, uh, quote, in the middle between God and sinners. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. This is our only hope in life, and our only hope in death is that we have mediation now, right, with God. Um, this is something like on a human level, if you've ever had to have mediation, that implies a problem. Like, you know, if your marriage is in a, in a hard spot and you're like, I, we need mediation, a third party in the room, or a coworker, or a friend or something, like, like, that implies there's a problem, right? And this is the bad news of the Bible is we need mediation with our creator. The good news is, that that wasn't some third, random third party, some angel or person or whatever that came in and said, oh, here goes God and sinners again. They can't get along. Let me talk it out with you. That's not Christianity. It's not the Bible. What it is is that God provided his own mediator. He became the mediator himself by sending his son to become like us in order to die for our sins and bridge that gulf. Um, that's the, 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 the olive branch, the peace offering uh, the, the, the offering of love that God gives us through his son, uh, but the mediation is needed. This is, that's, again, that's the, that's the dark backdrop against which the bright foreground shines all the brighter. Um, the good news being that bright foreground being Jesus is the in-the-middle one, um, the, the mediator between us and our creator who gets us home, who helps us to hear from God again, who lets us dine with him, who lets us see his face again and gives us hope for that physically someday when he returns. Another facet here with this one, spinning the diamond here again a little bit, is um, that Jesus' in-betweenness shows his association with criminals and sinners. So kind of similar, but kind of different. It shows his associate, just that he's there with, with, with these criminals. 
Uh, again, he's becoming the skull, as we talked about before. But here, he's literally being lined up in an execution line among other people who deserve it, even though he doesn't. Like if this was a, uh, like a firing squad, he would be right in the middle of the people standing on the ground getting ready to be shot. Like th th that's what this is. It's a row, a little row of people being crucified, and Jesus is right, uh, right there in the middle. Uh, made me think of uh, Jesus' baptism. We talked about this earlier in the series, but one of the reasons why Jesus was baptized was to associate with sinners, uh, to be counted among them, and to show that he would one day die as one of them for them. Uh, Aaron Zimmerman says uh, about this, when we talk about Jesus taking on our sins, his baptism's where it starts. This is him getting in line with all the sinful people and saying, I'm going to be one of you guys because he's identifying completely with human experience. I would add even sinful human experience, which is the scandal of it. Though Jesus is the perfect spotless, never, uh, ne never sinned uh, human being, the Son of God who, who took on flesh, uh, he somehow still associating and kind of, uh, or as the Bible says elsewhere, becoming sin, even though he wasn't a sinner, becoming sin on the cross, even though he never uh, uh, knew any sin. Uh, so I always think about this, like, with baptism, like, what it would have been like to be there, you know, um, and, like, to be the guy who was in line to be baptized, like, right in front of Jesus, you know? Like, what that would have felt like and what that would teach you, what that would teach him or her about the gospel, about the, the coming kingdom and what God was really up to in contrast with what we thought we knew, what we thought we knew about uh, this, this coming kingdom or, or this Messiah. Um, and they didn't really know who he was then, so it's kind of a moot question, but what if they kind of did? Uh, put yourself there in line with other sinners and all of a sudden the Son of God gets in line behind you. Um, that feeling... Uh, maybe a little surprise, maybe a little like unfairness and injustice, maybe a little bit of love mixed in, like mixing all that together, that's Christianity. Uh, did you guys hear about the, uh, the Super Bowl commercials from the He Gets Us campaign? Anybody see these if you watched the, or hear about this whole thing? Um, th this is really how Jesus gets us. The Son of God becomes us. That's how he can get us. That's how he does get us. He becomes us. This is why Christmas is so important, right? The incarnation, as we talk about it in theology, like he incarnated himself into human flesh. That means he, didn't just, he couldn't just come to save with a, a, a wave of the magic wand, like he became what he was going to, to die for and to be crucified as. Uh, that's why these two men are here as well. They represent us on both sides of these two thieves, um, they represent us. Uh, he became, he's dying with us or for us or, or as one of us. That's the scandal and the beauty of, of Christianity. Um, you know, I, I say, I think I've said a lot here, I'll say it again. Like Christianity is not saying um, become like God and become better versions of yourselves in order to sort of ascend. Christianity says you couldn't become like God, so God became like you in order to die for you. That is a complete flip on the head of all other world religions. Every single one. Christianity stands alone as the only one that has the story of a God becoming like humankind, like literally 
becoming a human being on this earth, walking around, eating food, laughing, crying, becoming like us as a perfect human being and dying uh, in an unjust way on a cross for our sins. Um, But that's Christianity. He became normal. He took on a name as common as John or Bob or Mike. No offense to those names. Uh, It's just common. Like Jesus was a common name. It was, it, it, he became normal to save normal people. And, and when we look to the cross, which is where Jesus' baptism was pointing, we're seeing this all over again. Jesus got in line with sinners like us. He got in line. And the, the, the three crosses are a line, right? They are a line. Jesus got in line with sinners like you and me to die for us. All right, the third location here is outside the city. Verse 20 says that Jesus was, quote, near the city, which implies he wasn't in the city, right? Um, And we know from other places in the Bible and from tradition that this was, in fact, the case, that Jesus didn't die inside the city walls, but he was uh, thrust out uh, into a place where crucifixions either normally happened or at least it was a place that uh, was, um, was outside the, the city proper. All right? So to that, you might be thinking, well, so what? Uh, and well, good question. Uh, but it's actually critically important, uh, according to the Bible. Uh, God never intended the, this type of location idea uh, the, uh, of Jesus' death to be random. Uh, Hebrews 13, actually, the Bible itself picks up on this. Uh, it says, the high priest, speaking of the Old Testament times that are, are, are now no longer, but to make a point, he, he says, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place, the temple, as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Okay, love this passage. There's a lot going on here, but we're not preaching Hebrews, otherwise I'd go deeper. But a couple things that relates to John 19. The big connection, sort of uh, bird's eye view thing uh, that he's making here is uh, between the old sacrifices that were burned outside the camp and Jesus now, who's fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system being the final sacrifice and dying himself outside the camp or outside the city gate as our ultimate sacrifice of atonement. So again, location is mattering here theologically. But if we press further as to why, like you could say, well, I still see the relationship between the two, but why is that important for us theologically? How does that serve as a balm to our wounds? His answer, at least his pastoral exhortation, Uh, here uh, is for Christians and non-Christians for the first time to go to Jesus outside the camp. That This is the the imperative of the passage, is go to him outside, not inside. Jesus isn't inside the city. Jesus isn't dying inside uh, the the, the walls of the city or or the camp. He's outside. So in, in a very decisive manner, know that and go to him uh, outside, outside the city, which is interesting because he's obviously talking figuratively here, uh, uh, right? Because this was written many years after Jesus's death to Christians uh, who didn't even live in Jerusalem, uh, people like us. And so this is a figurative 
uh, kind of spiritual exhortation here. So, what does Jesus' outside the city death mean in principle? It means he died apart from what the city and the temple inside it represented. That is the old covenant. Um, Elsewhere in the New Testament, it likens the old physical city of Jerusalem to the Old Testament itself. And the laws and commandments that mediated Israel to God, or rather failed to. Uh, But Jesus came not to keep with the old system of do this and then you will live, but to establish a new one apart from our works. All right, Romans 3.21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Speaking of Jesus. Uh, This is, again, location and is important. And what something is in relation to what it isn't is a very biblical way to think. Uh, The Bible isn't interested in mixing things sometimes, like we are in our brains. Um, Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it continues on in every way. And so we bring that sometimes to our readings, but the Bible's saying don't do that. This is an unmixing moment. We're not mixing inside the city with outside the city. We're not mixing law and being mediated to God based on what we do and our obedience. We're not mixing that with grace, with his power to save us unconditionally. Those are unmixable things, according to uh, Hebrews 13 here, John 19, Romans 3. They're all saying it differently. You know, Paul's here saying it prepositionally in a statement-based way. Hebrews 13 and, and, and John 19 are figuratively uh, demonstrating this. But this is the same thing as saying, um, but now outside the city, this righteousness of God has come. And we are saved by God's grace alone, not by keeping what was inside the city, which was laws and commandments, as if that was what counted uh, in order to turn God's face or to become favorable uh, to him. Jesus died outside the city to make it very clear that nothing you do uh, saves you. Uh, Non-Christian, Christian, Christian, and this is not just a moment of conversion idea. This letter was written to Christians. So what a lot of Christians do is they acknowledge this idea but think it's, it's, a, it's a mindset for conversion. But after we're converted, then the real work of Christianity begins. Then we need to talk seriously about law obedience. That's, that's the most important thing now. But this flies in the face of that idea because this was written to Christians. So the, the, the impetus here is for believers to think every day, what does it look like to go to Jesus outside the city, to run to him there? And not to expect him to, to uh, be inside the walls of our religious effort. And so sometimes when we do that then, so, you know, his exhortation when he says that is basically saying on the bottom here, um, let us run to him apart from law. And sometimes it means we bear disgrace. Uh, we bear disgrace, as Hebrews 13 says, because there's no earthly rewards that come, that come from this kind of spirituality. There's no, wow, look at how much that person has ascended or how spiritual they are. There's no um, accolade. There's just us empty-handed, seeing our need, head covered, owning our sin, not thinking highly of ourselves, shunning all the ladder-climbing religions of the world and running out of the city to the loving arms of our Savior. That is Christians every day. That should be you every day if you're a Christian. That should be me every day in my faith. 
that's what the end of this letter is getting at, is think about that. And don't read quickly over the, uh, as you might think, the insignificance of the fact that Jesus died out the city, but think carefully about these things and then think, what does that mean for my life? Where's the good news in that? And the good news is that it's okay. You're okay with just Jesus. Like you really are. He's enough. As Jesus says to Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, my grace is sufficient. My outside the cityness is sufficient. It's enough. Don't find me there, then run back to the temple, uh, offering God all your sacrifices and, and, and your deeds as though that counts to you. Just stay there. Uh, listen to me there. Cling to me there. That's what this means. And that's the window of John 19 with a few simple words. If he died near the city, this little window is uh, into the, the greener pastures of that brand of Christianity, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, that, that is, that's what this, this window is leading, is to that free, free air breathing um, way of living and being in, in covenant with God. The last of four angles here, underneath a multilingual sign, verse 20, the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Um, just a couple things on this, though again, there's lots to say. I'll, I'll just say, uh, and kind of close by this, is just to say, this is not simply a sign for a varied audience uh, linguistically at the foot of the cross, though it is that. It is that historically. But this is a signal that the cross is for all people. And I would say this is where God starts to translate his love to a dead and dying world. You could say, and I think you see this at Babel and other places in the Old Testament, um, being separated from God is not speaking his language. Uh, it's, like, it's like God is gibberish to us. Um, this is what this sign is showing us is that this, God is now starting to speak in a way that's clear, that we can understand. Um, and so, my family and I just saw um, a few of us, the Ant-Man movie this past weekend. Anybody see this? It's not great. Okay, but th there's this, um, don't, maybe you shouldn't go see it, but sorry, James. Um, it's, th there's this little thing in there where they're in this realm, this other universe, and they have to drink this liquid, and all of a sudden when they drink it, they hear people talk in their, in their language. It's almost like it's pointless. You didn't need to do that, you know, spend 10 minutes on that kind of thing. But um, basically, I thought it was kind of cool because the liquid was red, and it reminded me of the, the blood of Christ. Like when you drink down the blood of Christ, you can understand God again. He's not gibberish anymore. In fact, that's, that is when you understand. That's when you start to hear and see. Like um, I, I said last week, the Old Testament as a whole is gibberish apart from Jesus. Um, we cannot understand the Old Testament apart from him. You cannot understand the love of God apart from the cross. You can't. I don't care how much you try. I don't care who's told you otherwise. Uh, you can't. Um, this is where God is translating his love. He's saying, actually, 1 John 4 says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. Um, Romans 5.8 uh, is, this is how we know the love of God, that he died for sinners, not good people. Um, and, and, and we know that when we look at the cross. Like, this is the love now. We see it there. Uh, and, and it's a love for all of us. Whatever our language we speak, whatever our background or spiritual state, it's not just Aramaic, Latin, and Greek we're talking about. We're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
in terms of uh, morality when it comes to people. Jesus died for all equally. Jesus died for the very far, the kind of far from God, and the near to God. Um, That passage that Spencer read from Ephesians 2 a little bit ago, um, it says, the promise of God came to those who are close to God and those who are far away. The same promise. Like when, when I think of like um, things that are near to something, I, you know, and far away, you, you, we tend to think that the one near to something must have done something to get there. And the one far away must have haven't. But the Bible doesn't, doesn't talk in those terms. It says whether you're close to God or far away, whether you're a good person or a bad person, a lawful person or an unlawful person, Jesus brings together all underneath the banner of his death, for there is, as Romans 3 says, there is no difference. There is no difference. For the Jew and the Gentile, the good and the bad, those who are experiencing revival and those who are not, all get the same kind of grace from Jesus. There's no difference. There's no distinction. Because it's by grace we're saved. And so nothing we do or experience changes that. Isn't that amazing and incredibly freeing? I hope it's a relief when you really understand grace. Uh, one of the most prominent feelings you should experience is relief. Relief. Relief is an experience of grace because you're hearing that, I, that, it, that I'm okay on the basis of someone else's constant work for me and love for me, not on anything I have to give back uh, to, to him. So Jesus came for all. Um, I was thinking this week too, that's good news, but also bad news when it comes to, or tough news when it comes to, um, you know, uh, our worst enemies are just as loved as we are. That's maybe a little harder, right? But it's good news because we're someone's worst enemy and we're loved. So that all evens out. But the, the worst, you know, again, there's no distinction Our worst enemies are just as loved, just as died for as we are by Jesus. That's what the gospel says. Because it's by grace we're saved in the end, by his blood, not our blood. So I'll just leave you guys with this this final exhortation from Hebrews 13, which I know I said before, I'll say it again to me as well. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says to us. Go to Jesus outside the city. That is, outside the walls of religious performance, outside the walls of burden and expectation, and see that he dies for you apart from those things, in love, unconditionally, forever, and bask in the sunlight of that gospel the rest of your days. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, Thank you for the beauty, the scandal, the horror of the, the, the death of Jesus and yet the beauty, the endless grace that we have in it and how the location, um, the different facets of that idea sing uh, the, that, that gospel. They, they sing that you associated with sinners, that you became a skull, that you walked into our nightmares to absorb them, that you stomped on the head of the devil, um, that you sliced open our sin for it to bleed out and never live again, that you um, died outside the city, outside the walls of our moral effort and um, the old covenants of law obedience being required to be in covenant with you. You died apart from that to show that the gospel is altogether apart from that notion. The New Testament is different than the old. 
They're not one and the same. They're different. And so help us to live as new covenant Christians in the Son of your grace, growing by the love that you show us, being wooed by the love that you show us, being changed by the love that you show us, uh, and not seeking to change on our own dime or on our own effort. It never works. It never works. Uh, forgive us for trying. Um, but God, I pray for myself and everyone here that, that you would transform us by the Spirit and not by the written code, as Romans 7 says. Help us to live by the Spirit and not by the law, by your love for us constantly and uh, not by what we have to give. Uh, in Christ we pray. Amen.